Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. You can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We are picking up in verse 22. John, chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified? Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Father, we do thank you for your word, for our time of praise and worship and fellowship, and just good to hear all this talk and people just getting along with one another. We turn our attention now to your word. We pray that you would anoint these lips of clay and prepare our hearts for what you would like to do. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book, Life the Movie, cultural critic Neil Gabler claims that People magazine has become the standard magazine of our time. Gabler writes, inspired by a section of Time magazine that chronicles celebrity milestones, People magazine expanded that concept to include anything a celebrity did. They did this on the shrewd principle that ordinary people were fascinated by extraordinary ones. Within 10 months of its launch on March 4, 1974, the magazine had a circulation of 1.25 million. Its success was unmistakably a testament to both the fabrication or the fascination concerning celebrities. People's editor Richard Stolley even devised a set of rules for a successful magazine cover. Now, please listen closely to this because this is what our world deems most important. It begins... Young is better than old. Pretty is better than ugly. I'm depressed already. That's two strikes against me (laughs) right off. But it continues. Rich is better than poor. TV is better than music. And music is better than movies. Movies are better than sports. And anything is better than politics. And nothing is better than a celebrity who has just died. Now that was an alarming and calculating description of not only what sold magazines, but of what values the media has sold to our country. Here's what I want us to get. 
In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says that of those born of women, none were greater than John the Baptist. So the obvious question we should ask ourselves this morning is, what made him so great? I think our text will answer that. Look at verse 22 with me. And these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and with and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Let me begin with a question. Why did John baptize in Anon? Was it because he received heavenly instructions to minister there? No. Was it because he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy? No. Here's the answer. You may want to write this down. John baptized in Anon simply because there was much water there. How is that for profound biblical exegesis? This is why you come to Calvary Chapel. But I do have a point in this. Too often we can make finding the will of God too difficult. I believe we would do well to demystify the process of discovering what God wants us to do. John simply went where the water was. His location was perfectly suited to what God had intended and instructed him to do. I'm reminded of the late Chuck Smith's account of how he determined it was God's will that he went to Costa Mesa. In the early 1970s, Calvary Chapel was located in the middle of a bean field. But in the ensuing 20 years, not only did the church grow numerically, but the Costa Mesa area has grew to the point that Calvary Chapel is now sitting on some very prime real estate. Chuck had often been asked why he had, if he had received a vision, a word of prophecy, or a special sign to pastor this church in Costa Mesa. And he would just laugh as he replied, No, I took the church in Costa Mesa because I like to surf, and it was the closest available church to the beach. <laughs> what am I saying to us? I just want to encourage you to trust the Lord to use your desires, your interests, and your abilities in his naturally supernatural way. This will bring joy to your heart and glory to himself. So whether it's for baptizing, fishing, or surfing, just go to where the water is. Verse 25, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified? Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Verse 25 tells us that a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. The reaction of John's disciples, however, reveals that they felt a deeper issue was at stake. Namely, the relative merits of John's baptism and his, in comparison to that of Jesus. Now, the dispute surfaced an issue that had no doubt been disturbing some of John's disciples for a long time. To understand the setting of these words, we must recognize the fact that John the Baptist had achieved a great deal of popularity as the result of his preaching. Luke tells us that multitudes went out to hear John. Matthew tells us that people came from Jerusalem and Judea and from the region of the Jordan. Now apparently these multitudes included all the segments of the population, which included Pharisees, Sadducees, tax collectors, soldiers, the rich, and the poor. Now here John speaks of an official delegation from Jerusalem. 
We are told that on some occasions, John was praised as a reincarnation of either Elijah or one of the other prophets. And in time, John's popularity came to Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, Herod liked to call John and hear him preach, we are told. Mark tells us that at the beginning, Herod heard John gladly. Unfortunately, Herod enjoyed John's preaching as long as John preached only in generalities. When he was specific enough to speak out against the fact that Herod was living with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, well, Herod's enthusiasm immediately cooled. John had said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This so angered Herodias that eventually she succeeded in having John arrested and later beheaded. All that to say, John was a very polarizing man no matter which side of the fence you were on. So with that in mind, our text, we see that John was presented with news from his disciples that multitudes were now coming to Jesus for baptism. But John's disciples here, I think, have missed the point. What they perceived as competition to John's mission, John saw as the completion of his ministry. I can imagine him saying, hey John, that man you testified about is baptizing And now get this next part, and all are coming to him. You cannot have five words more carefully constructed to provoke fear and jealousy in a leader's heart than to say that all are coming to him. In essence, John's disciples were saying, listen, John, you had a nice little congregation growing down there. I mean, you had shirts made up and everything. And you were perfectly nice about it. You told the people he was the Lamb of God, and how does he repay you? He goes and steals your sheep. Without realizing it, John's disciples were putting him into a situation of competing against the Lord Jesus. All are coming to him. Sounds like a wail of despair. It is interesting to note that four of the greatest men in the Bible faced the problem of comparison and competition. Moses, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul. It's really kind of strange. But a leader often suffers more from his zealous disciples than he does from his critics. Look at verse 27 with me. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. What does John say? The exact words are important, for they do not merely reveal the state of John's thinking about himself and Jesus' ministry. They also show us this morning the necessary ingredients for achieving the same level of humility in our own lives. First, John said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The background is the Corinthian church was actually arguing about the teachers that they preferred. To Paul's dismay, some of them were saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Peter. To these comparisons and divisions, Paul asked them, Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Later on in chapter 4 of that same book, Paul writes this, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one another. 
For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Basically what Paul is teaching us is no matter what great things God chooses to do with any individual life, there is absolutely no cause or any room for any kind of pride since anyone doing anything is only because of God's enabling them to do these things. John the Baptist had this truth completely nailed down. This was an awareness by, of, by John of God's sovereignty in all parts of his life. And now this isn't false humility. Like when boxing promoter Don King once said, I never cease to amaze myself, and I say that humbly. It was the first of several things you'll laugh later that kept John humble. If the newcomer Jesus was attracting and winning more followers than John himself, this was not because he was stealing them away from John or acting dishonestly in presenting his claims. It was only because God was choosing to give them to Christ to be his followers. I wonder if we have a right sense of God's sovereignty in such matters. Now, let me issue to us a word of caution concerning God's sovereignty, which can be defined as God's total right to reign over all aspects of everything. So what does it mean to have a proper understanding of God's sovereignty in our own lives? Let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. To have a proper understanding will not mean that you are free to be lazy in your Christian life and then blame your lack of achievement upon God. John did not do this, for we read that even after Jesus had begun his ministry, John went on preaching and baptizing. He continued doing what God had given him to do. So believing in the sovereignty of God does not mean that we can be lazy. But it does mean that whatever results that we get from our efforts, we will see God's hand in them and will not be jealous of those through whom God apparently may choose to achieve more. Do you and I have this same self-awareness? If we do, it will mean, at least at one level, we recognize ourselves to be nothing. Now this is God's own appraisal of us, as was conveyed when Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, on the other hand, it will mean that when we do accept that statement, we can go on to recognize the importance of what God has given us to do. If a person will accept God's verdict, he can become something for the Lord. But if he rejects that verdict of being able to do nothing in his own flesh, he may achieve all kinds of things. But here is the truth. No matter what is achieved, it will have no eternal impact or reward. But if a man or woman will believe what God says about them, they will admit to what he really is and they can enter by faith into what God wants you to be in Christ. In the 12th chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes this about humility. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. In this verse, although it is hidden somewhat in the English translation, one Greek word, phreneo, occurs four different times. Now this word describes a man who is in his right mind. It is, for instance, 
a word that would have been used by a man making a will. He would have begun by saying, being sane and in my right mind, I do hereby bequeath, and so on. Now the word is preserved in English in the words frenetic, phrenitis, and phrenology, all of which have to do with the brain. Now with that definition in mind, no pun intended, let us now translate the verse using the idea of sanity. You guys are a tough crowd. This translation is from the BSV, the Bill Scott version, soon to be stolen stores everywhere. (laughs) Not really, but here's how I would translate it. They said, and we had visitors too. (laughs) For I say, through the grace given unto me to every Christian among you, do not indulge in an arrogant estimation of yourself, but rather be sensible about it, so your estimate of yourself is sound. That's what the Lord would have us to do. And this John did when he fixed his mind on the fact that God called him merely to be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ and to just be a witness for him. John knew he had nothing apart from God. Any abilities, gifts, or ministry he possessed came directly as a gift from his heavenly Father. So too. If there is an area in which you excel, it is solely because God has sovereignly and graciously given you the necessary desires, abilities, and provisions. And as another aside, we must also face the painful possibility that my ambition may exceed my gifting. Like the story of a young farmer who was standing in his field and he observed an odd cloud formation. The clouds form the letters G, P, and C. And he thinks them a call from God. Go preach Christ. The farmer rushed to the deacons of the church and insists that he had been called to preach. Respectful of his enthusiasm, they invited him to have the pulpit the following week. That Sunday, the sermon is long, tedious, and virtually incoherent. When it finally ends, the leaders just sat there in stunned silence. Finally, a wise old deacon mutters to the would-be preacher, Son, it seems to me the letters GPC didn't mean go preach Christ, but was probably just saying, go plant corn. (laughs) But here we see that John the Baptist, he knew and he understood his place. Do you remember the story when Moses and Joshua went out of the camp? And while they were gone, they find out that some of the elders had been prophesying in their absence. And Joshua says, hey Moses, Eldad and Medad were prophesying without your permission. And what was Moses' reply to this? He said, are you jealous only for my sake? I would to God that all of God's people would prophesy. And in John's case, we see that God's primary call for him was to be a witness, and he fulfilled that, and he was glad to do so. Verse 29, please. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. To explain the reason for his ministry and the basis for his joy, John used an analogy that was very familiar to his disciples. He compared Jesus to the bridegroom and himself as to being the best man. You see, the wedding custom in John's day dictated it was the best man known as the friend of the bridegroom who really ran the show. He invited all the guests and he made all the preparations for the wedding. And finally, upon completion of the wedding, he escorted the bride and the groom into the bridal chamber. 
And once the bridegroom and the bride had been brought together, the work of the best man was then completed. What a foolish thing it would have been for the best man to try to upstage the bridegroom and take his place. John's joy was to hear the voice of the bridegroom and know that he had claimed his bride. What John is saying is, you're trying to make me feel threatened because the bride has goo-goo eyes for the groom. But the bride is supposed to have goo-goo eyes for the groom and not for the best man. And if the bride does have goo-goo eyes for the best man, it usually ends up being a country and western song involving a dog and a southbound train. (laughs) If you'll remember, when John first met Jesus, if you will, both were in their mother's wombs. John leapt for joy when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, entered the room. Now here in our text, we see that at the zenith of his ministry, John still finds joy in the sound of Jesus' voice. Now allow me to apply that to all of us. Do you know when joy is truly fulfilled? It's not just when we do something for the Lord or get something for the Lord, but really it's just when we hear the voice of the Lord. If you are expecting your joy to be fulfilled through a nicer spouse, a faster car, a better job, you are headed for disappointment and disaster. If you are caught up in thinking, if I can move to this place, get that promotion, or be more popular, if I can be more effective here or used there, then I will be joyful, you are headed for disappointment and despair. As far as service goes, one of the keys of the Christian life is to simply bloom wherever God has planted you. The fact that we are, as a church, compared to God's bride is some of the most beautiful imagery that I think one can imagine. We need to remember the fact that God is jealous over his bride, the church, and by extension, all of us who comprise it. You may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Well, it can be if it's used for the wrong reason, but jealousy can also be a very good thing. In God's case, his jealousy toward us is aroused when we are rummaging around the garbage piles of life and avoiding the ultimate source of true satisfaction. Reminds me of a comic strip showing a dog who had been drinking out of a toilet bowl. With water still dripping from his snout, he looks up and tells us, it just doesn't get any better than this. The tragedy is, we can behave the same way. Instead of enjoying fresh spring water, we look for stagnant, crummy-tasting substitutes that will inevitably fail us. This is what calls God to say in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns that are broken and can't hold water. What are the two evils that the people committed there? In actuality, one leads to the other. To understand the full impact of that scripture, we must look a little closer at the historical context. Now, Jeremiah preached in a day when the people of Judah, who were the southern portion of the nation of Israel, had completely turned away from the living God just to go do their own thing. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, compared this to digging themselves cisterns. Now, a cistern was an artificial pool that was dug in the earth or hewn in the rock for the collection and storage of water. Now, maybe we could try to excuse them for digging their own cisterns. 
Maybe they were just going through a tough time and had been through some stressful situations and they just wanted to make sure that their bases were covered. But that was only half of what God said that they did wrong. Trying to construct an artificial container for collecting spiritual water, well, that's bad enough. But to turn away and reject the water that was life-giving and was the spring of living water, well, now, that's tragic. How could anyone in their right mind do such a thing? Now, if no natural spring existed thereby, digging a cistern would be the best thing that you could do. And if a spring was nearby and you didn't know it, you would be pitied for your ignorance, but at least you were trying to do something. But if you did know that there was a good spring of running water readily available, and you deliberately turned your back on this life-giving source to construct a cistern, you would be incredibly and unbelievably foolish. And so Jeremiah used the, the illustration of the broken cistern to show the extreme foolishness of God's people who are no longer totally committed to God. No longer were they devoted to the Lord or depending on Him to meet their spiritual needs. And God used this illustration to show His people how utterly foolish and guilty they were by turning away from Him and trying to build their own cisterns. When I typed that, I thought, is it possible that some of God's people today are guilty of the two evils that the people of Judah committed in Jeremiah's day. Is it possible that we have become so accustomed to the living water that we've wandered away from the fountain to see if there's some water available elsewhere? Have we foolishly gotten involved in constructing our own leaking and stagnant cisterns? What does that look like? Wealth, fame, recognition, honor, position, power, pleasures, friends, tradition, merits, just anything trusted besides God can be a cistern. Now, and they are cisterns at the very best, whose water will putrefy and leave you with nothing but mud and dirt in the end. We make a mistake if we ever try to bring fulfillment in our lives by things and stuff. Now, these things in and of themselves are not wrong, and they are good and helpful when kept in their proper balance. But when we find that we are looking to these things to find our ultimate source of satisfaction and fulfillment in life, we probably have a subtle form of cistern construction going on. And you and I know better, but we can still do that. We involve ourselves in everything that comes down the pike, trying to fill that void that only Christ can fill. Now this is the point I want to make concerning cisterns. The three things cisterns were used for in that day was for provision, prison, and graves. And when we have a misdirected devotion such as addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, shopping, outward appearance, or even our own personal agendas, at first they seem to satisfy as a provision. But then later on you find out they're actually a prison until finally, if you don't repent, it can become your grave. We truly need the Lord to help us in these things as we can't do it on our own. And it is the height of arrogant pride if we think that we can. Romans 11.21 warns us not to be puffed up with pride. That made me think of the puffer fish. 
The puffer fish can inflate itself into a ball shape to evade predators, also known as the blowfish. These clumsy swimmers can fill their elastic stomachs with huge amount of water and air and blow themselves up to several times their natural size. Just think of the last time you put on sweatpants and went to the Golden Corral. <laughs> but these fish just aren't cute. Most puffer fish, now that wasn't that funny and you laughed at that. <laughs> Most puffer fish contain a toxic substance that make them foul tasting and potentially deadly to other fish. But what is interesting, the toxin is so deadly to the degree of 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide poisoning. There is enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans, and there's no known antidote. Here's what I want us to get. Like puffer fish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look bigger than what they really are. And this pride can also become toxic to a marriage, a church, or any relationship. As we close, I hope we've all been inspired and challenged by John's humble example. In the book, The Reformed Pastor, written in 1656, we are given this exhortation. Oh, what a constant companion! What a tyrannical commander! What a sly and subtle insinuating enemy is a sin of pride! Is not pride the sin of devils, the firstborn of hell? Is it not that wherein Satan's image doth much consist? And is it to be so tolerated in men who are so engaged against him and his kingdom as we are? The very design of the gospel is to abase us, and the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. He finishes by writing, It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. Let's all take that to heart this morning and follow the example of John, for it is the recipe for a joy-filled and fulfilling life. And Father, I can be so prone to pride and so blind sometimes I don't even see it. I pray that you would open my eyes and everyone's eyes in here to where we truly stand with you at any time during our lives. And Father, we know that you, you abhor pride. It's one of the seven things that you hate. And Lord, we want to be like John. We want to have that humble attitude of whatever you tell us to do, we go about it doing it humbly and faithful until the end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.